There's power in record keeping, but I think that my perspective of records and their importance, especially within the context of church history, has changed from one of a historical resource to a potential source where the Spirit can be made manifest. And ultimately, I think that's what record-keeping in the church should point us to, the Savior Jesus Christ, that He is in the details. To me, that is part of an unfolding miracle. I'm Sarah Jane Weaver, editor of The Church News. Welcome to The Church News Podcast. We are taking you on a journey of connection as we discuss news and events of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Lord commanded Joseph Smith that the Church's records and history should be kept continually. While the prospect of recording and preserving those records can seem daunting, The Lord promised that the continual keeping of records would be for the good of the church and the good of the rising generation. Matt Heiss, who will retire in March as a member of the Global Support and Training Division of the Church History Library, joins this episode of the Church News Podcast. Since 1987, Matt has worked with the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to acquire, manage, and train others on collecting church history. Today, we are happy to have a discussion with Matt about the importance of church history, the potential of record keeping, and of course, what he knows now after decades of serving the church history department. Matt, welcome to the Church News Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm hoping we can just start and have you tell us just a little bit about what your job entails. You know, we hear things and terms like global support and training division of the church history library. What is that? So right now, we have divided the world into four quarters, and there are four global managers that manage those. So I'm responsible for church history operations in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. That's my little quarter Uh of the world. And what church history operations means is that we seek to collect, preserve, and share records that document the beginnings of the church, that witness to the Lord's dealings with his children, that document the progression of the church, how it evolves, how it changes over time, how it adapts to different cultures and settings. And I think that for most of us, church history is most meaningful when we can trace it to our own family tree. Uh, You have to have some personal experiences with your own family history that has intersected with some of the work that you have done. Yeah, you know what? Let me tell you a story that actually became a very powerful, tender mercy in my life, in the life of my family. So my grandparents joined the church before World War I in Germany and Austria. And then they emigrated, uh, met each other in Chicago, got married, had my father who had me. And um, we were very close. I was very close to my grandparents, and they loved to tell stories about the old country, right? In the old country, we did this and that. And they would often talk about, my grandmother would often talk about how her mother joined the church. And the story was that she had to be baptized at midnight because they were afraid that the police would come and arrest them and deport the missionaries. So I grew up with that as a child. And then years later, I'm working in the church history department, and I'm thinking about that story, and I said, what if I looked and see what records we have about my great-grandmother being baptized? So I found her baptismal record, and I thought, that's really cool. So I made a copy of it, kept it for a couple years, and I don't know what prompted me, but what happened is I pulled it out one day, and it listed the two missionaries, the one who had baptized her and the one who had confirmed her. And I thought, what if those missionaries kept a journal or a diary, and I could go to that record and find an account of what happened that night and see if she really was baptized at midnight? And I thought, what a long shot. I mean, thousands of missionaries have served in Germany. What would be the chances of one of those two missionaries having his journal in the church archives? I plugged in the first name to the church catalog. No hit. Couldn't find it. We didn't have his journal. 
I plugged in the second name, and lo and behold, we had his missionary journal. So I immediately called it down. We had the hard copy, not just a, a microfilm or a digitized version. Called it down, opened it up to the day, and there it was. He had written down that he had baptized my great-grandmother at midnight, and he got home at 1 o'clock. So the story was true. But what's really cool about that is I thought, well, who brought that in? I'm the guy who collects for Europe, you know, and I didn't do this. So I looked at the little cataloging note, and I saw that one of my coworkers had found that journal on eBay. He paid a couple of bucks for it, bought it, brought it in, gave it to another coworker who cataloged it. But there it was years later when I needed to find it. So, of course, I, I copied the pages, you know, typed it up, sent it out to my family, and that was the tender mercy that came from my own family history being recorded in a missionary journal now in the church archives. I mean, to me, that's like tender mercy. I love that story because in the, the almost 30 years now that I have worked for the church news, I see and hear and have written stories about how different things come to the church, how the paths that people right. take or that printed materials take that find yeah. the person that needs them at the time they need them, whether that is you learning about your own family's history or someone finding something that leads to their conversion. And that just does seem to be the miracle of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that there are so many little miracles that take part of this work every day. One of the things we love to do is document the histories of individual countries. Certainly you've seen a lot of those. Is there one that stands out to you that is remarkable? You know, there's a lot, mm -hmm. all right? I mean, here's what's pretty cool. Years ago, I went into the country of Moldova, just this little former Soviet republic between Russia and Romania. And I got there when the first four young elders were still on the ground. The work had just opened up. There were like 40 or 50 members, and my companion and I interviewed half of them. So we got oh. half of those members. I mean, that was pretty cool. Same thing happened when I went to Malawi, which is in southern Africa. The first missionary couple was still there on the ground, and we did the same kind of work. We went out to this remote village where this guy had found a copy of the Book of Mormon or Jesus the Christ and had converted the village, and there we were on the cutting edge of history. So in some ways, that was like a historian's dream come true, to be there at the very beginning. I was supposed to go to the Gambia last June. Elder Christofferson had just dedicated the country in February of last year. A branch was going to form on the Sunday that I was supposed to be there. I was in Ivory Coast doing some work, and then I was going to go over to the Gambia, and <laughs> I got COVID in Ivory Coast, so I had to cancel my trip to the Gambia. I'm sitting there in a hotel, quarantined for a week before I could get home. It was just awful. But again, it's this notion of being on the cutting edge. But in terms of, of moving and uh, something that has always moved me, and it's probably because of my family connection, is that in 1991, a year and a half after the Berlin Wall came down, I was able to go into the former German Democratic Republic, or East Germany. I spent several weeks there interviewing people that had lived behind the wall, who had associated with Thomas S. Monson when he was ministering to the saints there, who kept the faith despite having the secret police, you know, bug their apartments and bug their telephones, open their mail— who had waited forever for a temple until 1985 when the Freiburg Temple was dedicated. And just personally, and I think because I speak German and I have that connection to Dresden, that's where my grandmother was baptized, so my roots go back there. To me, that is just one of the things that stands out in my mind from a personal level and from a historical level. You know, I got to go into the secret police archives, and I got reams of paper, photocopies of the way that they used to spy on every single branch of the church in the former German Democratic Republic, just what people were able to endure and, and, and keep the faith in spite of opposition. To me, that was amazing. Well, that's really beautiful. You know, I studied uh, journalism at Brigham Young University, 
in my senior seminar while just completing my studies in journalism, I had a professor who, for our final exam, for our senior seminar at the end of our journalism training, asked us to go to the scriptures and write a news story about the resurrection of the Savior based on the accounts found in the New Testament. And that experience changed so many things for me. It not only brought the scriptures to life for me because I could start to see them as if they were primary sources as they were happening right then, but it also changed the way I viewed what I do for the church news because suddenly I was seeing myself as recording something that was right on the front lines of the restoration unfolding now you get to do that too. <laughs> it's it's a it's a rare and really sacred privilege. How do you feel about that responsibility? The responsibility is daunting because I often think if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And yeah. what if it gets left undone? Or what if you do it just a little wrong? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. It, you have to be so accurate. <laughs> you do, and you don't always get second chances. Yeah. I mean, when I'm on the road. Doing an interview, if something goes haywire, I've lost it. So it's certainly a challenge. There's a little bit of an adrenaline rush. But for me, it's motivating um, Mm -hmm. because I think I'm making a difference. I think I'm collecting something that's unique that's going to bless somebody, not just a scholar who's going to write the history of the church in whatever nation, but really somebody who's looking for something that will bolster faith, something that will witness to the hand of the Lord moving in history, whether it's something huge like the Berlin Wall coming down or something in an individual's life. I don't know that it matters that much. It's really just this notion of seeing the hand of the Lord move in history. President Eyring talked about that in October 2007. That was a landmark talk for me I remember it. You know, I talked to people, hey, you remember President Eyring's talk? It's like, what? But in October 2007, in General Conference, he gave a talk called, Oh, Remember, Remember. And in some ways, that became sort of the constitution, at least in my mind, for the work that we do. You know, write it down, capture it, preserve it. Why? Because it testifies. That's... I'll tell you, I've had a lot of sleepless nights since that talk because I don't keep a journal the way I should. And I think, oh, I want my posterity to know that I had great faith. And so, you know, at at the Church News, we have part of our mission is to connect people. We want to connect people to the church and to its leaders and to one another. And I love that history also connects us to those who went before us so we can learn things that were important to them. Now, you have an interesting story about the first missionary called from Yugoslavia. I do. Back in the good old days when the church history department was in the church office building, I used to have to do a shift in what we called the reading room, where patrons would come in who wanted to do research, and we'd help them find the records that they needed. And so one afternoon I was um, sitting at the desk, And in came this woman, whose name is Radmila Ranovich. And she was looking for information about the church in Yugoslavia. And I had just barely gotten the assignment to document church history in Europe and Africa. So I'd started as a cataloger, and she comes in in about 1988. And she says, "Um, I'm looking for something about Yugoslavia. And, of course, she had an accent. And I said, well, who are you? And, you know, what... What is it you're looking for? She told me a little bit about her story, and I recognized immediately that she played a key role as one of the earliest converts to the church in Yugoslavia. So we're talking about, you know, Tito is still in charge of the government. This is still a sort of a socialist communist state. And here she was baptized in Yugoslavia. And then she said, oh, and I've served a mission, too. And I'm thinking, what? So this is the first missionary, and it's a sister missionary. So I kind of jumped on that and said, um, you know, Rad Miller, how would you feel if uh, I was to record an interview with you about your experiences? And she said yes. So I think I did two, two or three sessions with her, which was absolutely amazing. She knew and worked with Kreshemir Chosic, who was the BYU basketball star that came here, 
didn't know why he was here. Hugh Nibley and Truman Madsen kind of brought him into the church. Hugh Nibley baptized him. So this little short scholar, this giant um, basketball player, he's baptized in the tabernacle. She had worked with Chosich, and she could tell stories about that. And she could talk about how hard it was to, to not have, you know, regular missionaries, to not have the fullness of the church there in Yugoslavia. So I jumped on it, and she was one of the first people that I'd ever interviewed in my career. And I think that two lessons is, number one, um, her story was awesome. You know, she played a critical part in Yugoslavia. But more than that, I think that the Lord put her in my way to say, look, here's what you need to do. Uh, You need to interview this woman. You need to capture her story And there are still living pioneers. You know, it's not just 1847 and people crossing the plains. It's, it's, it's Yugoslavia. It's, it's Senegal. It's, you know, Kenya. It's Russia. Well, and so much has not only happened in the world in the time that you've been there, but since you started your job in 1987, technology has changed in the church history department itself. Can you highlight some of the changes you've seen in the way history is recorded and the way the church does that uh, since your career started? Yeah. Let me tell you two stories. The first one is uh, when I first started traveling, I would take a big studio quality cassette recorder, a big mic about the size of this thing, a whole brick of batteries, probably 15 to 20 pounds of these uh, D batteries, and then... 60 to 100 cassette tapes. And uh, when I would go into places in Eastern Europe or Africa, I knew that it would be very difficult to find those things, so I had to kind of pack everything I needed. And I remember going into Russia the first time, and my Russian was not very good. It still isn't. But I'd recorded interviews in Kiev, Ukraine, and then up in uh, Moscow, and I was at the airport heading out, And the border guards stopped me and said, what's in your suitcase? Would you open up your suitcase? So I did. And here's 100 cassettes and my recorder and my big giant mic. And they're going, what have you been doing here in Russia? You know, we need to listen to these. You can't come in here and and just record this and take it back to America. And I was panicking and I was praying that I would get through this. And they're talking to me in Russian. And I'm going, oh, I barely understand what's being said. They let me through. My prayers were answered. I'd been interviewing just the early converts to the church. You know, what brought them to the church, capturing their testimonies. It was nothing controversial. It was just basic church history. But that freaked me out. That's back then. Today, well, for example, in November, I was in South Africa, Kenya, and Tanzania. had a small little digital recorder that had a 16-gig memory card in it. I had a jump drive. I could record 100 hours of interviews on this little recorder that I could put in my pocket, two AA batteries. I was good to go for three weeks. It was awesome. It was awesome. That's one example of the way technology has changed my career. The other one is a year and a half ago, I got the email address of one of the first members of the church in a country called Guinea-Bissau, which is a small little country in West Africa, and I think they still speak Portuguese. I think Portuguese is the Mm -hmm. colonial language. And this woman had, uh, her name is Margarida. She joined the church in Portugal, um, went up to England. She had really good English. She went back to Guinea-Bissau. And she started telling family and friends, and pretty soon she's got a small little Sunday school going. And I thought, how am I going to get an interview with this woman? You know, probably one of the first members of the church in Guinea-Bissau. To make it a little bit more difficult, she got a job with um, UN security forces and had been posted to northern Mali. And I thought, oh, this is going to be impossible. I emailed her and said, hey, uh, any opportunity to meet uh, over a video conference? And she said, of course. I interviewed her in northern Mali using Zoom, capturing her story about how she found the church and what she did to establish the church in Guinea-Bissau, a nation that very few people have heard of, but a pioneer. And here she is in Mali. I mean, that's just 
for an old guy like me, it just blows my mind that I'm living in future land recording the history of the church. Well, you know, I have experienced the same thing in my career. I was uh, recently at the dedication of the Puerto Rico temple, uh, the newest temple of the church, and we use recording devices that are about the size of a quarter. They just stick right on the person with a magnet, and it's hours and hours of recording time, as opposed to the early days where you'd have cassette tapes if you recorded it at all. In my early career, we would travel with a camera and film, And the most you could pack was six or seven rolls of film. So for the whole trip, you could take just over 200 pictures. Uh, And in Puerto Rico, we took thousands and thousands of images to get ones that were just right. So technology has absolutely blessed this work. It's also probably made it a little more overwhelming because of the volume of things. Yeah. Um, I'll take the volume over the 20 pounds of batteries um, and the fact that I can take my smartphone and just do an impromptu interview with a guy right at a, some historic site, you know, and, and, and we're videoing that. That is awesome. And, you know, one of the things that is probably hard for both of us in our work is language barriers. Uh, you speak a little Russian and German and can do interviews in English. But so much of what you've recorded would have to have been recorded with the help of a translator. Yeah. Like I did my first Kikamba interviews back in November when I was in this rural area in Kenya. So you have to rely on somebody who's going to translate for you. You've got to be quick on the draw with follow-up questions when you don't get everything in uh, the back translation. And rely on the Spirit. My translator in Kenya... When we pulled up to the gate of the chapel, I mean, here we are, dirt roads, uh, there was a dead hyena on the road as we were turning off, um, baboons all over. It was awesome. And uh, (laughs) she came running out to the van, and she said, who are you? And I thought, well, who are you? Um, And uh, so I told her, and her English was pretty good. And she said, oh, I heard about you guys, and there's some old members of the church here waiting for you. They don't speak English. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I said, well, would you translate for me? And she did. And with some of these old members, we just had them bear their testimonies, you know. I could feel the sweetness of their spirit, and I wasn't concerned about the language. One of these days when somebody wants to document the history in in Chulu, Kenya, the Chulu Hills area in Kenya, they'll have those testimonies of these people who have been Latter-day Saints in a remote area for 30, 40 years. That's pretty cool. Wow, that's just beautiful. Now, as the church has become more global, there has to have been a need, right, for decentralization of church history. The decentralization of the work of church history is probably one of the most significant and I would say inspired events that I have been privileged to be a part of. And one of the crucial events actually goes back to the year 2001. I was in Mongolia with one of my co-workers. Nobody from church history had ever been to Mongolia, and the church was relatively new. I mean, it wasn't brand new, but it was new enough. And we were there in Ulaanbaatar, and we were introduced to a young man who had just returned from his mission. He had served up in Russia, and his name was Adiabold Namchai. And he would help us. He'd do some translating for us, and he traveled with us, and he had a great spirit. We interviewed him, and he was just an amazing young man. He was single at that time, just returned from his mission. And at night, my coworker, whose name is uh, Michael Landon, we were sitting there. We were in the same apartment that the missionaries had secured for us, and we're sitting there wondering, you know, what if a native Mongolian were to be doing these interviews. What if we could hire this young man, you know, pay him two bucks an hour, which would have been amazing wages back then, and he could do these interviews. He could go to all 10 branches, and if he did 10 interviews in 10 branches, we'd have 100 pioneer interviews in the language, not with some, you know, North American not understanding half of anything that's being said and having to work through a translator. So we started to formulate that plan, and we did the math, and we figured the money that we spent on round-trip plane tickets and food and lodging 
could have supported this guy for a year to go around to those scattered branches in Mongolia and do that work. We brought the idea home, started toying with it, and it wasn't right. But the seed was planted, and the seed was this, that local church members who understand their culture, their language, and the context in which members live can do a better job at recording history than I, as an outsider, can do recording that same history. So in uh, 2009, the church history department, our managing director, a man named Stephen Olson, said that it was time for our department to take the show on the road, to decentralize. We were a headquarters-centric department. In other words, I'd go out, I'd spend as much time as I could in the field, I'd bring all my work back, we'd process it, and then I'd go back out into the field. We had no permanent presence, and we really had people who only spoke language they learned as missionaries. So we didn't have any Mongolian, we didn't have any Russian, Polish, anything like that. So in this effort to decentralize, the model was that we wanted to have local members in the area offices. So we kind of used the church's area offices as a place where we could set up a little office and have people called to serve in a church history capacity. A lot of those first offices were manned by couple missionaries. For example, the first couple missionary I ever worked with, Elder and Sister Herman, who live up in Centerville, They were stationed in Frankfurt. Um, I had a missionary couple in Johannesburg, South Africa. Those were my first two missionary couples. But their job was to reach out and to find local members who would accept a call to serve in a church history capacity. And then those local members would be trained on how to record oral history, on how to appraise and acquire records, on how to document church history sites, And that's how we started. And I'll tell you what, yesterday I had a video conference with my Europe team, and two of the people that I initially trained way back in 2010 are still serving as church history specialists in Europe. One man in Germany and a a couple up in Finland. And it's just amazing to see that. And that, in my mind, has revolutionized the work that we're doing in church history. We're now a global department We've got these church history specialists all over the globe. We have now full-time employees. I've got three that work on my team, one in Ivory Coast, one in South Africa, and one in Frankfurt, Germany. And they have their field staff of some couple missionaries, but mostly it's local members documenting their own history. To me, that is part of an unfolding miracle. You know, as the church has moved out of obscurity and become more prominent, there has to have been many more people who were interested in the history of the church and what they could learn about the history of the church. And there also had to be a shift in how we share our history. You know, I think of the Joseph Smith Papers Projects and how that has moved history to a place where it's open and accessible and transparent. Can you talk about how the church history department has moved out of obscurity with the church. Yeah. Also one of my favorite topics. I'm going to set it up by talking about two things that existed when I started in January of 87. In January of 87, Mark Hoffman, the forger who had duped the church, blown himself up right behind where the conference center now is, but really started planting seeds of doubt with the Salamander letter and the Joseph Smith the Third blessing and all those things that he did. We weren't in obscurity, but we were kind of in a bad light. It's kind of like, oh, you know, here's the church history department. He got some of his documents from the church archives or, you know, people were, yes. it was a hard time for the church archives. Also, back in 1987, our department was located in the east wing of the church office building. I remember that. So it wasn't very prominent. So fast forward a couple of years, and what happens? In 2009, the church history library on the corner of North Temple and Main Street was dedicated by Thomas S. Monson. Here we are now with this beautiful building, state-of-the-art preservation facilities, 
office space, etc., were now a very prominent part of the downtown church campus. So we're no longer tucked away in the east wing of the church office building. We're now smack dab in the middle of, of everything. And it's kind of symbolic the way that we're placed. Think about this. You have four corners. On the one corner is the conference center, okay? To me, that represents the words of the living prophets, seers, and revelators that they record at General Conference. Kitty corner from that is the church office building, so the the seat of church administration and government where all the temporal affairs and, and other things happen. Across the street is the church history library where we preserve the history. And then kitty corner from us is the Salt Lake Temple where we experience and receive the ordinances of exaltation. So we've got this really cool geographical symbolism going on there. For me, that is the sacred geography, is the way we're placed. And so I think that's one thing that has really helped our department come out of obscurity, is to be so prominently stationed in that amazing church history library I think the second thing that has really helped our department come out of obscurity is, well, you mentioned the Joseph Smith Papers. That's obviously a big thing. And in the scholarly world, it's huge. The the quality of scholarship and publication that goes into those books is is absolutely amazing. But I want to highlight Saints, the four-volume history of the church that is not shying away from some of the more difficult topics. And I think that's another way that our department is sort of leaving the shadows. We're never in the shadows, okay? The brethren have always given us really good support, but we're becoming more noticeable to more members of the church and in languages. Now, not every language, unfortunately, but, you know, we reach a wide audience with the translations that have been done. So I think saints is another tangible evidence of how the church history department is moving out of obscurity. Well, and I also want to talk about some of the personal and professional highlights of your career, as far as the people you've met or the places you've visited or the events you've witnessed. Uh, Can you share some of those highlights with us? I'll tell you what, sometimes I need to pinch myself as I walk away from an appointment or an interview, and I think, holy cow, I just got to sit at this person's feet and collect his journal or record her history or whatever. Let me give you an example. Just last week, I was up in Kaysville, and I met with a man named Isaac Ferguson, Brother Ferguson, in 1985, following the two special fasts for Ethiopia, was given the charge to spend those $11 million in a charitable way to help the people in in that famine-stricken part of Africa. That was part of the springboard that led to the development of Latter-day Saint Charities, and Brother Ferguson was the first director of, of the church's humanitarian efforts. Now, the church had been doing humanitarian work for years. You think of after World War II, uh, we sent in all that aid to the European saints, and Ezra Taft Benson was there on the ground. And, and even before then, we had helped Armenians that were facing starvation, and the church had been doing it, but never in a sort of a systematic, organized way. It was always kind of a reaction to some world disaster. But now, Brother Ferguson was developing a systematic way to bless the lives of people. I had interviewed Ike Ferguson over the years because I think humanitarian work in the church is one of the great chapters of church history that has yet to be really written. He helped me with a paper that I was presenting in England last year. And he said, Matt, you know, um, I've got a lot of stories. So I went up and did an extensive interview And I'd be there in his office, and I'd look down on his bookshelf, and here he had all these binders. And I said, Ike, what are these things? And he said, well, that's my journal and my trip reports and correspondence. And I thought, holy cow, this is like the golden plates of Latter-day Saint charities. So I said, what are you going to do with all this stuff? And he said, well, I'm not sure. And I said, well, how about placing it in the church archives? So last week, I went to his house with a couple of my coworkers. We loaded up two big boxes And now in my office, I've got Isaac Ferguson's papers 
on what it was like to begin humanitarian work in the church. I pop open one of the folders. Here it is, February of 1990, and he's meeting with the Europe Area Presidency, and they are strategizing how they can get the first four missionary couples into Romania to help in those orphanages where the orphans were just kind of, you know, swaddled and bound and neglected to help in a bunch of other areas. And I had interviewed those first missionaries that went in, and they led the way for the proselytizing missionaries to go in to Romania. And here I'm looking at the record of Ike Ferguson talking to President Hans B. Rinker about what are we going to do? How can we get people into Romania? I mean, I'm holding the golden plates of Latter-day Saint Charities. So that's Isaac Ferguson. I got to meet and interview Beverly Campbell, and I don't know if that name means anything to you, but Beverly Campbell founded or organized the Church's Office of International Affairs in Washington, D.C. We hadn't had a permanent presence in D.C. until she put together the office, and her responsibility was to take the church out of obscurity by making connections to ambassadors, politicians, journalists, other people who needed accurate information and who needed the church. Whether it was humanitarian missionaries going into Romania or whether it was proselytizing missionaries going into, you know, who knows where, or the Tabernacle Choir going into the Soviet Union, not Russia, the Soviet Union. They went in June of 1991. They went to Leningrad. It's before the Soviet Union ceased to exist. And Beverly Campbell helped to make that happen. She performed an incredible service in preparing the way for prophets, seers, and revelators to open the doors to nations. And my focus was always on Central and Eastern Europe, but she did it in Africa, she did it in Asia, and I got to interview her once in Salt Lake, once in Virginia in her home, and I remember I was so intimidated because, I mean, she hobnobbed with ambassadors, with prophets, with national leaders, and uh, I'm just this kid with a tape recorder, And she made me feel like a million bucks by giving me hours of her time. She had a big plate of treats off the side, (laughs) which I didn't touch until I was done interviewing her. And she was just so gracious. And then years later, she would call me up and say, hey, Matt, could you come over? I need help with this or I need help with that. It was just awesome to associate with this woman who I think helped change church history. She was never out in front of the brethren. She wasn't telling them what to do but she was supporting them in a way that was absolutely unique and necessary for that period of time. Well, and I think one of the events that all of our listeners will be keenly aware of that can help us understand how you catalog church history is the evacuation of missionaries around the world during the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, we we had missionaries crisscrossing the globe in just a couple of weeks, and not just a few— you know, we did a, a podcast with Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf at the time, and he said it's more than 30,000 missionaries crisscrossing the globe, all returning to their home countries as borders started to close. Yeah. Uh, what a sad chapter, but what an amazing event to document. And I think there's a lot of silver linings that go with COVID, so I'm not just going to put COVID in the trash. So here's a little bit of the background. In February of 2020, I was in West Africa. I was in Mali, actually, um, recording interviews again with the two groups of Latter-day Saints that had just started the church there. And we started hearing about what was going on in China. That was February. In March, I was supposed to go to England to present a paper, and I was really psyched about getting into the UK and doing some work and giving the paper. And that's when the borders came shut, started to close down. I had missionary couples in Europe and Africa that were part of the evacuation. And one of the things that, uh, that happened is that we knew that this was a unique moment in church history, in world history, and in church history. And so a lot of us in the church history department were asked to record interviews with people in the missionary department, people in church travel, mission presidents that uh, let their missionaries go, missionaries that 
that were evacuated, missionaries that stayed in the field, and the impact that it had on members of the church. Not just the missionaries, but what was it like to have home church in Ghana, in Spain, in all these other places. And it was a pretty cool project. I remember, um, I can't remember the people that I interviewed. It might have been some people in church travel, but they were working 24-7, and miracles were happening. Seats on planes were made available. Planes were made available, charter planes uh, were made available to get missionaries back home. And the director for temporal affairs, the DTA in South Africa, actually would spend the night at the area office just to be there on site so that as things were progressing and developing, he didn't have to come in from home or be a phone call away. He was right there. One of my missionary couples knew him. That's the couple that was serving in Johannesburg, Elder and Sister Irving, and they recorded an interview with him about the many days that he slept at the office just to be there. So the story is about the commitment of church employees to ensure the safety of missionaries who needed to come home. And there were some missionaries who got stuck. Some missionaries served 30, 35 months because they couldn't get home. So it's, it's, it's the caring nature of the church leaders. It's the innovation. You know, I think President Uchtdorf talked about a did he call it a divine restart or something like that, that COVID gave us an opportunity to kind of examine some things, how we do missionary work? What home-centered, church-supported church service really looks like. And I'll tell you what, a lot of the members of the church that I interviewed, even recently in Africa, hearken back to President Nelson implementing that before COVID and saying, you know what, the Lord prepared us with Come Follow Me with home-centered, church-supported worship service. That's awesome. You know, we had Elder Brent H. Nielsen come on the Church News Podcast and talk about the miracles that happened in the years before COVID that allowed missionaries to have digital devices during the pandemic. And so I always love to think about and document and ponder the miracles and the faith of our members and our leaders. What advice do you have for people who are trying to do that for their families? What do you have to tell anyone who is trying to make their own family history? First of all, I'd say do it before it's too late. One of the great things I did, and I had the advantage of being a church employee, so I had a little bit of resource, but I interviewed my two German grandparents and I got their stories, and I could tie it into the context so I wasn't cheating and you know doing personal history on church time. Both of their interviews are in the archives, but it was a great opportunity for me to sit down and capture their stories. Recording devices are so inexpensive. Memory costs next to nothing. We can preserve audio and video. I say just do it. Prepare to do it. You know what? I never go into an interview without an outline and without doing my homework. So it always helps to, you know, if you're going to interview mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, make a timeline, you know, make sure you got some of the great stories listed, uh, have a basic interview. You can go online and just find, you know, how do I interview somebody or how do I find an, a good outline? But really, I think it's just doing it. And I'll tell you what, if there's pictures... Make sure people identify them, because guess what? In a generation, nobody's going to know who's standing next to the Christmas tree, right? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's hard for me to admit this as a mother of three daughters, but there are times when I even look back at baby pictures and think, now, which one is this? And it's because you think that you'll always remember. You think that that moment was so clear, and then it does sometimes shift in your memory, and you have to pause a little and say, oh, That was daughter number three. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what I would also say? I think that the capturing of church history is or should be a spiritual endeavor. Now, I don't think when you sit down with grandma and grandpa, you should have an opening prayer and, and, and that kind of thing. But I'd certainly have a prayer in my heart. And I'd take that approach. And when I start talking to people and we get a little bit beyond just the surface stuff, 
there is a spirit that comes into that setting that triggers memory, that helps me to think of the next question to ask or the next thing to say that's going to move the conversation along. So I would just encourage people to take a spiritual perspective of the whole work of gathering history, and the Spirit will be present. I'm glad you talked about that because we have a tradition at the Church News Podcast where we ask people to answer the same question and then to share their testimonies that they have learned along the journey of whatever it is we're talking about. And so as we conclude today, I'm hoping that you can do that and answer the question, what do you know now after documenting church history? And how has that blessed your life and strengthened your testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So when I was in grad school, I would look at an archives and a document as a historical source that I was going to put in some kind of a scholarly paper. And I don't know that I was a great scholar, so how about a grad student's paper? But I think that my perspective of records and their importance, especially within the context of church history, has changed from one of a historical resource to a potential source where the Spirit can be made manifest as somebody interacts with that document. And I've seen that. I had my own experience with that when I found that missionary journal that documented my great-grandmother's baptism. I've seen it happen where I've helped other people, patrons who have come into the church history library. We open it up, and here's, you know, Grandpa passing the sacrament for the first time or something like that. And the Spirit just comes into that, and it's unleashed because a clerk was doing his job, and he wrote down who was passing the sacrament that Sunday or what baby was being blessed. I remember once somebody had a brother who had gone inactive in the church and he gave a talk in a sacrament meeting in St. George, Utah. And the guy says, can we find a record of that talk? He was the youth speaker or something like that. So it's like, oh my gosh, this is needle in a haystack. So we pulled out the volume, we thumbed through it, and the clerk not only wrote down so-and-so gave this talk, but a little paragraph of what the guy said. And when his brother's reading that, he could see that his brother had a testimony when he was a young teenager giving that talk in sacrament meeting. And it was a pretty moving experience for him to, to reconnect with his brother in a spiritual way that hadn't been that way for a long time. And I couldn't even remember the person's name right now. If I had to try to find that person, I couldn't do it. But there's power in record-keeping And there's the scripture in Alma, chapter 37, verses 8 and 9. Now, what's cool about Alma 37 is this is Alma talking to Helaman. And what's he doing? He's giving Helaman the records of the church, the golden plates or whatever manuscripts they've got at that time. And he's teaching his son about the importance of records and record keeping. And this is what he says. It has hitherto been wisdom in God that these things should be preserved. For behold, they have enlarged the memory of this people. They brought them to the knowledge of the Lord their God and to rejoice in Jesus Christ their Redeemer. And ultimately, I think that's what record-keeping in the church should point us to, the Savior Jesus Christ, helping us recognize and see his hand, his influence in our lives, that he is in the details. And he's not just blessing President Nelson and the Quorum of the Twelve and and, and all those people. He's blessing the rural converts in Chulu, Kenya, and the Russian and Ukrainian saints that are doing their best to stay on the covenant path. And he manifests himself in their lives. And if we write down how that happens... It reinforces the memory in our own lives. And President Eyring talked about this. He said, you know what? As I'm writing in my journal, the Holy Ghost can teach me things and show me things that I didn't see during the day that are important to record. That's a part of record keeping. And then those who come after us, our family, our posterity, other members of the church, whoever, non-Latter-day Saints, will benefit from the power that is in those records that we keep and that we preserve and that we share. 
Just last year, my stake president asked me to give a stake fireside, and I led off with what I hoped was a little bit of humor, and I told a true story. Early in my career, like 1987, I told somebody that I was working in the, at that time it was the historical department, now it's the church history department, and he goes, oh, I hope your testimony is strong enough to withstand what's in that department. And I'm thinking, what? I had no idea what he was talking about, actually. That's how naive I was. And then I started looking at the Hoffman stuff, and I kind of thought, oh, yeah, people can kind of use history to detract faith, to diminish faith, to cause doubt. But my experience over these 36 years has been the opposite. And it's not always just sugar and spice and happily ever after. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes prayers are answered in ways that you don't expect, or maybe that we as humans don't want, or they seem to go unanswered, but still heard. And my experience is watching this from kind of a global perspective, big world events like COVID or the Berlin Wall coming down or uh, wars and rumors of wars, uh, members having to endure that kind of thing, to what happens in the lives of individual Latter-day Saints who are brought to the church, who are blessed because of their obedience, who get access to the temples. And now it's so much easier with like 300 around the planet. But what that tells me is that God is in the details and that he loves his children and that he blesses them in the ways that they need and that when we record that, that we can help the rising generation look beyond the distractions and get to the real heart and soul of why we're here, and that is to find the Savior and to find our own divinity and to magnify that through the gospel. That's what I've learned, and that strengthens me, and I'm grateful for it. What a blessing it has been for me to work in this kind of an environment where I get to experience that. So for me, church history has strengthened my testimony, and I'm so grateful for that. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to the Church News Podcast. I'm your host, Church News Editor Sarah Jane Weaver. I hope you have learned something today about The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by peering with me through the church news window. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. And if you enjoyed the messages we shared today, please make sure you share the podcast with others. Thanks to our guests, to my producer, Kellyanne Halverson, and others who make this podcast possible. Join us every week for a new episode. Find us on your favorite podcasting channel or with other news and updates about the church on thechurchnews.com.